0: Let's take our reading uh, from Titus chapter 1. A very good overview of the letter to Titus and Titus himself last week from Giles, so if you've not listened to that yet, uh, I encourage you to do so. We're going to take as our focus portion for today Titus chapter 1 and verses 1 through to 4. Paul a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time and which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Saviour. Have you ever wondered why personal letters are included in our New Testament? Personal letters are usually that, aren't they? There's something that is written usually with a, a private thing that you're wanting to communicate to somebody else. I think the convention for the day... Um, means that what we have in our Bibles is pastoral letters or personal letters, 1st and 2nd Timothy, and then there's this one to Titus, and another one uh, as well to Philemon from Paul, and then John's, a couple of his might be personal letters as well. The reason they're included is because the convention of the day was that the writer would convey something to one of the leaders of the church, or somebody with some significance in the church, with the intention that that letter would be made public. That's the reason why the letters are then included in the New Testament, because they would have been seen as authoritative documents that were then circulated in addition to the letters that were written to churches. And I think that helps us then understand why Paul, to Titus, who's his true son in the faith, as he describes him, so somebody that he knows very well, Why Paul feels it's important to describe himself in the way he does, and then to say something in this greeting that's here at the start of the letter about the greatness of God. Well, surely Titus knows all this. Of course he does. But Paul knows that this letter is likely, most likely, going to be read to the congregation. The congregation's in Crete, where Titus is based at this time. And it's going to be shared with them. So it's instruction to Titus, but at the same time it's instruction to the church. And therefore, it's in our Bibles because it's instruction from God through the authoritative voice of an apostle to us today as well. So that's why it's there. As we were told last week, Titus was probably a letter written by Paul in the early to mid-60s A.D., Paul, tradition tells us, was beheaded in the mid-60s. So this was still when he wasn't yet in his final incarceration, but it was coming close. And by this point, some of the other apostles were already martyred and others uh, were coming to be late in life and so on. So Paul knew that there was an urgency. And John told us about that. There seems to be an urgency... In the succinctness of his letter to Titus. Because persecution is increasing. They can see that's happening. The apostles are being martyred. And soon their authority as the unique mouthpieces of God. In that era is going to come to an end. Now Paul packs. Densely packs many truths. That are glorious into these opening four verses here. And we're just going to be skating across the surface of them. Alistair Begg has a helpful outline for this little section. He speaks of Paul's position, of Paul's purpose, of Paul's preaching and Paul's partner. That might help us just to uh, grab um, something and take it away with us when there is so much in here that we can carry something away. So let's first think about Paul's position Paul describes himself as a servant of God. It's the only time Paul refers to himself as that in any of his letters. It's interesting that and it probably has an echo from the Old Testament where Paul was thinking of those who were described as the servants of the Lord in the Old Testament. Moses is the one who is most named in that way. David is another one and there are some others. But it was someone who was completely given over to the service of God. The word really is bond servant, and it's someone who, in the culture of the day and in Jewish culture in particular, would have sold themselves to someone else so that they would be part of the household of someone else, owned by the house owner or the, the landowner, give themselves to that because they themselves had come into financial difficulties and they were struggling to make ends meet. A way of Extracting yourself from that and avoiding destitution was to sell yourself then uh, to a landowner. Now that wasn't a thing of drudgery. It was actually a thing of honour and privilege. It wasn't enforced slavery. You would sell yourself to another who really was your equal. But you were accepting that they were greater than you and had more capacity and could keep you and your family in financial means it's not enforced slavery when Paul is saying that he's a servant of God he knows that it's the intervention of God and his experience and God's grace he has brought him from a very arrogant place as a Pharisee who thought he was one of the greatest of the Pharisees who was against the, the person of Jesus and so on and he was humbled by God's grace he realised that this Jesus was no equal to him but he was far greater when he met him on the road to Damascus and the Lord revealed himself to him. It's the same for us. No one, the Bible tells us, can boast before God. We can only boast in God himself because God is the giver of life and he is the sustainer of life and he is the one who gives life to those who are dead in their sins. It requires humility to come to God. So here was Paul, the arrogant one who's been brought down But now has this privileged position as he sees it. An honour and a privilege to serve the great God of eternity. Here in space and time. And God in his grace has brought him to that. He goes on to describe himself then as an apostle of Jesus Christ. The Greek actually says, and further. It would say, Paul a servant of God. And further, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And further, you see. He wants to go further. He says, I am a a servant of God. But more than that, I am an apostle. Of Jesus Christ. Now that's a bold claim. And it was a bold claim f- for him to be one of a unique and unrepeatable group of men that the Lord Jesus Himself had commissioned to be his mouthpieces, his teachers, his preachers, to recount the teaching that he had given to them, to ensure that disciples after them in churches of God would be strong in the things that the Lord had taught. The apostles were given that responsibility. It was a God-given responsibility, commissioned by the Lord directly. And those people had to have witnessed his ministry and his resurrection. Paul came to witness the resurrection of the Lord Jesus on that road to Damascus. He probably had seen something of the ministry of the Lord. But there is a period of time in which the New Testament account tells us that Paul was quiet it seems for a few years after his conversion and it could have been during that period that the Lord spent time with him in repeated visions as Paul speaks of where he was given the instruction that had been given to all of the others. So here's Paul a servant of God in all of his humility but yet with such dignity because it's God's grace that has brought him to that and he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. The apostles were the mouthpieces of God Jesus has said to them, you are the ones who are responsible to take this. The foundation of the churches was the teaching of the apostles. The disciples in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So this was a remarkable um, position of authority and responsibility. And what the apostles knew was that in what they were sharing with people, and what they were writing in their letters to people, was actually the authoritative word of God. With that commission from the Lord, they knew that the things that they said and the things that they did and the things that they wrote would be inscripturated, would be written down and would be used by God to instruct the churches after they passed on. We should be amazed, shouldn't we, at the, the grace of God in Paul's experience, not only in his but also in our own, to transform us from being enemies of God as were described To God now, no longer having wrath against us, but instead in the person of Jesus. Calling us to himself and saying, you're now my servants. We're not apostles, but we are called to serve God. So that's Paul's position. What about his purpose? Notice that this position as a servant of God and as an apostle of Jesus Christ in that unique office was to further the faith of God's elect. Or other versions will say the chosen of God. This language which comes up time and time again in scripture should not disturb us. Let's rejoice in the reality that God saves some rather than saving none. That's the grace and the mercy of God. We're all sinners deserving of God's wrath but yet in his grace and in his mercy he saves some. Scripture from beginning to end shows us that it's God who takes the initiative to redeem and bring a people to himself through the redemption and salvation that he secures for them in and through Jesus Christ. So God is the one who is active initially. He redeems us through the life and the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, it's the same for all people who would be called God's people in the Old Testament and in New Testament days. The Old Testament people, it was a prospective thing. They were looking forward to what God had promised would be the means of their ultimate forgiveness of sins and a place with God for eternity. And we in New Testament times are looking back. And we're looking, each of us, from, from both eras, looking to the cross. It's the focal point of history. And while God takes the initiative, it is divine initiative, the demand is for a human response. That's there always in Scripture too. Faith is required. Paul's purpose was to further the faith of God's elect. Faith is required. Individuals, everyone, because we're all sinners, must exercise personal faith in Jesus as prompted and empowered by the Holy Spirit. We're able to do that because of the power of God that he gives to us. To awaken us to our sin and the need of a saviour and to see the saviour for who he is. It's turning from sin and embracing the forgiveness of God in Christ Jesus. That's why Paul said to the elders of Ephesus in Acts 20 and verse 21, he said, I solemnly testify to both Jews and Greeks, everybody, of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The two are necessary. To be known as one of God's chosen ones and the elect is someone who, by the working of God, has come to see that need to repent of their sins because their sins keep them from God and demand His justice of wrath and judgment. But also, they turn from that and they put their faith in the salvation that God has provided in Jesus Christ. There's no other way to be right with God. That's why Paul in Romans 10, as we've thought in recent times quotes the text from Joel everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved so God's election it's God's initiative but there's a human response required and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved God has brought Paul into service so that the faith of the elect would be furthered So faith is, we've just been thinking, is required for salvation. But faith, growing faith, is actually required for the Christian life. And what's referred to in the scriptures as sanctification. That process of becoming increasingly like the Lord Jesus. Growing faith. So Paul, in his capacity as a servant of God and as apostle of Jesus Christ, he's been called into that by God's grace that he might further the faith of the elect those who have exercised their faith in Jesus Christ and have demonstrated that they're the ones whom God has chosen from before eternity, they continue in that faith trusting in God and that faith deepens and blossoms and grows and develops over time. And Paul knew that his teaching and his preaching was not only that faith might come that would save, but faith that would come that would save the life And transform it as well. God's children are to grow in faith. Remember the Lord Jesus challenged his disciples during his time with them. Oh you have little faith. So it's possible to have little faith. Faith is still there. The Lord I think was encouraging them to go on to bigger faith. We're to grow in faith. As Peter says in his letter. 1 Peter 2 verse 2. Like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word. So that by it you may grow. In respect to salvation it's a natural thing we've been born again and like a baby craves milk w- naturally craves milk we also should do the same thing and if we are genuinely those who have been born again that will be a natural thing if it's not natural then we have to query the reality of the birth in second Thessalonians Paul writes this in chapter one and verse three He says, we always ought to give thanks to you, brothers and sisters, because your faith is increasing abundantly. So what Paul had heard of them was the evidence that their faith was increasing. How could you tell? It was in the way they lived and the things that they did. So Paul's purpose was to further the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth. Notice this. Faith is strengthened by an increasing knowledge of the truth, upon which we have set our faith. The more you know about something, the more you will trust something, or mistrust or distrust something. We know this. The word here means experiential knowledge. It's not merely the gathering of information into the head, which it's so easy to do, and we can trot all sorts of things off because God has given us the capacity to know things, and we can show that we're we're very clever because he's given us that capacity. It's not that at all. It's, it's taking information and experiencing the reality of that knowledge of the truth of God. What's the truth of God? It's the truth about himself and it's revealed to us and given to us in his word. His authoritative word. It's experiential knowledge to know by experience. Paul in his personal letter to Timothy 2 verse 4, we, we know the text well. says that God wants all people to be saved yeah, and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So there's that element of coming to the knowledge of the truth that Jesus Christ is the saviour. Yes, that's required for salvation. The truth that we are sinners and deserve the punishment of God. The truth that Jesus is the saviour that God has provided in, in the place of those who will trust in him. And then the faith to continue to believe and grow in the knowledge of the truth that God has given. And to continually go over that. You know, Christianity and its teaching is not all about new stuff. Sometimes we can sit there and maybe think, I already know this. Yes, we do already know it. But it's the truth of God, and the more we think about it, the more you learn about it, and the more you think it through. Let's be careful never to come and think, Well, I know this. Let's come and recognize that the truth of God is there and it's given and it's to be repeated and it's to be repeated and it's to be repeated. It's not about trying to find something new, it's about repeating the truth of God and increasing in your knowledge. There's no point increasing your knowledge in things that are spurious uh, interpretations of scripture. We increase our knowledge by repeatedly thinking on the same things. The remembrance, I'm going off peace here, the remembrance is that we come week after week after week and we say similar things in different ways to God. A deepening experience that God has revealed to us something else Of the truth that is there. It's not necessarily something new. It's just we've seen it in a different light. It's like that diamond that you set down. You look at it and the light shines from different angles and so on. That's the truth of God. I'll just say this very quickly. It's about facts as well. It's not feelings. Our feelings fluctuate day in, day out. And minute from minute even. But the truth of God is fact. The word of God is to be trusted. And that's why we're Bible people. Everything that we might hear and see and be encouraged to do by society should always be tested against the truth of God's word. Psalm 119 verse 18 is always a helpful prayer before you come to God's word. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things in your law. That was only a small portion, five books of the Bible that the psalmist was referring to the law. We have the 66 books of our Bible. Open my eyes, Lord, that I may behold wonderful things from your law. But notice that this furthering of the faith of the elect and their increasing knowledge or their knowledge of the truth was to lead to godliness. This is why it's not merely head knowledge. It's to transform the life, to live more like Jesus. That's what sanctification means. Sanctification means becoming increasingly separated To look like God as he has revealed himself in the person of Jesus as a human being. It's increasingly becoming more like him than what we were and what the world is. That's what sanctification, that doesn't happen instantly. (laughs) This process takes time. Romans 8 verse 29 says that God has foreknown people to predestine them to become conformed to the image of his son. That's his purpose. And Paul says in Philippians 2, this is not just a work of God, it's it's a synergistic work between us and God, as helped by the Spirit of God. Paul says in Philippians 2 verse 12, he says, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So we're to work it out. God starts the work and works with us in it, as we would become more like god that's what godliness means and the practical godliness the evidence of a life transformed by the knowledge and the faith is what paul gets to in the rest of titus practical instruction to to everybody for people for home life for life in the workplace for life in society and for life in the church community it's all contained in the letter for us say this we cannot be godly or begin on the road to godliness unless the spirit of God is dwelling within us. And the spirit of God who empowers this transformation process is given to us at the moment of our of our birth. In fact the spirit is there to cause the new life that causes us to trust in the saviour. And receive the forgiveness of God and to embrace the righteousness of Christ on our behalf. And then step forward to live a life more like him. In verse 2, Paul then says it's in the hope of eternal life. Paul's not talking here about some uncertain expectation that he himself, through what he's doing, is maybe by his good works going to obtain eternal life. He's not referring to himself, I don't think. He's talking about every believer who has this faith and this knowledge of the truth. It's in the hope of eternal life. And it's the unshakable certainty That eternal life is given and guaranteed to all those whom God has chosen for himself. He has in mind the future aspect of eternal life. But we know we have eternal life here and now. Jesus said in John 17 verse 3. This is eternal life that they may know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's eternal life here and now. The knowledge of the truth. See how it all fits together. John 5 verse 24. Jesus said... Truly, truly, I say to you, the one who hears my word and believes, him who sent me has eternal life, has eternal life. does not come into judgment, but was passed out of death to life. Glorious reality that at the moment of salvation, we are saved, we have eternal life. And it's the beginning of this experience of God and of the Lord Jesus, the increasing of knowledge. And it's which God who does not lie promised before the beginning of time. God is absolutely trustworthy. I'd love to go off on this one, but uh, we don't have the time. But we take it for red, don't we? That God is absolutely trustworthy because our experience of his word and our understanding of it and our seeing of his promises fulfilled in everything and then its own experience in our own lives, I hope. We know that God is absolutely trustworthy. He cannot lie. He does not lie. And notice that it was all before the beginning of time promised before the beginning of time. Before there was the creation of anything, God had determined his plan of salvation, which was for his glory. And he calls us to enjoy it. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. But notice, Paul goes on to say, and now at his appointed season, or at the right time, he has brought it to light. So God had promised it, then makes everything, makes us, the fall happens and we fall into our sin and we can't get ourselves out of it. He provides a Saviour for us and God brings it to light. He brings it to light in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ most fully of course but he brought it to light as well through the things that he had said that are written down and recorded for us in the Old Testament and then it's brought to light further through the preaching of the apostles and their writings that are recorded for us in the New Testament. Galatians 4 and 4 says, When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. God was holding back, according to his own timescales, to reveal the glory of himself to us. Let's praise God for being a God who does not lie, but may sometimes take a long time, as we would view it, to fulfill the promises that he has made. We go forward in the hope of eternal life. We have it now and it can be taken from us and the future aspect of it is guaranteed forever. This brings us on to Paul's preaching that this was brought to light, of course through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul says particularly here, through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Saviour. Paul knows that what he has heard from Jesus Christ directly is a command to go and give and speak and not be quiet about what he has been given. God our Saviour, he is the only source of salvation. So Paul stepped forward in his capacity as a servant of God and as the apostle of Jesus Christ. That was his position. But he recognised his purpose was to further the faith of the elect and to help them with their knowledge of the truth through his direct preaching and through the writing that we're receiving today. And he would preach about that, he would go forward in that knowing that it would touch generations. And we're so thankful to God for that. And then he addresses his partner, and we're finishing with this. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, Giles last week told us that, I think he said this, Titus has been with Paul, it seems, from very earliest of days. Galatians chapter 2 would seem to hint at that. So in the quiet period of about 14 years, when after Paul's conversion, during that time, Titus was reached by Paul, who must have preached... So that Titus would come to an understanding of the truth and put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Titus then comes and wants to spend his time with Paul. And he goes up with Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem and so on. That's listed for us in Galatians 2. But my true son in our common faith. It's someone that Paul can say, there's, there's someone that's a, a product of my preaching. But my preaching was just part of God's purpose. And God's purpose was that Titus from before the beginning of time was one of his. And praise God that Titus is here. Now Titus you come alongside me. And let's together work on being more like Jesus. My true son in our common faith. He then gives his greeting particularly to Titus. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Saviour. Here's Paul getting at grace which keeps appearing in the letter of Titus. Grace that saves us. It's God's grace that saves us. Nothing we can do for ourselves is Paul's message over and over again. The unmerited favour of God. We've done nothing deserving of salvation. In fact, we've done everything deserving of judgment. But yet God in his grace has provided the saviour for us. And what is the result of that? It's peace. Peace with God through the blood of his cross. The blood of Jesus was shed so that we might have peace. Jesus was given and sacrificed himself to the Father so that the wrath of God against us would be turned away when we put our faith and our trust in him. So I just finish with the question, do, do we all for sure know that peace? Peace with God. There's nothing else more important. Peace on this earth would be great. We're not going to see it, but peace with God is more important. Have you experienced the results of the saving faith? Of the grace of God putting your faith and your trust in Jesus who has been provided? If you haven't, then you need to repent and believe. Without it, judgment awaits. The hope of eternal life is not yours. And then for us that do know that, I think the encouragement from this I would take is that Paul had preached so that things would be conveyed to others and that he wrote things down, knowing that they would be conveyed and